0: Hello and welcome to Talent and Titan, a podcast for current and future leaders in the advertising, digital, and design spaces. Talent and Titan is produced by Creative Niche, an innovative staffing, recruitment, and executive search firm in downtown Toronto. You can find Creative Niche on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Creative Niche or at the website creativeniche.com. On this episode of Talent and Titan, you will hear a conversation between Lanny Geffen and Teresa Kasserin. Lanny is the director of strategy and user experience at One Method, a digitally minded creative agency responsible for Drake's brand book, getting Nescafe on Tinder, and helping Amir Johnson become the most active pro athlete on YouTube in the world. You'll learn how Lanny arrived at One Method, the importance of synthesis and empathy in good UX design, and how storytelling will play a crucial role in VR and AR technologies. Lani also provides us with some insights about the next generation of talent and how, in today's world, all the dots connect. Stay tuned for all of that and more coming up next.
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I thought I'd start off by asking you a little bit uh, about you. Can you give us a little bit of insight into your background and how you've landed in your role today and a little bit about what you do today?
2: Uh, sure. So uh, i always loved design and I always loved technology and many years ago, as like a young 20-something, I was trying to figure out what I should be doing with my life. And at that point I found, you know, there's a really great intersection between technology and creativity uh, in the advertising and marketing industry. So I decided to focus there. And um, I both studied a little bit of design as well as development and kind of created a very big portfolio of largely fake brands. Uh, to break my way into the industry, but it was a full portfolio and I built websites and I did branding and everything. And that gave me an opportunity to get into an agency as an early unicorn. Uh, In those days, I was a flash developer as well as a graphic designer. And in those days, the digital practice was separated from traditional practice. And for me, that gave me a great opportunity to work with so many different brands on so many different types of campaigns. It was a great grounder and opportunity for me. And from there, I scaled. I left for a long time advertising and marketing and focused on product and digital products. Uh, So my career led me to a couple of startups, one my own, and then I was recruited into another as a creative director. And that was really fantastic. And it was just at the right point um, when new technologies were taking off, when mobile exploded and when there was this real gold rush for different brands trying to, to figure out what their digital strategy is and how they were going to approach it for their business. Um, So it gave me a great opportunity to synthesize all of the things that I love to do. I love great design. I love trying to solve the bigger picture. And I love to understand how business needs can meet market needs and, and users needs in a really beautiful and sophisticated way. Uh, And that's kind of what led me to where I am today, which is director of strategy and user experience here at One Method, where we try to work with some of uh, the world's most recognized brands and help them plan their digital strategy and how, how that should manifest itself and trying to help them stay one step ahead of the curve.
1: You talked a little bit about branding, marketing, development, all being part of your background when you were starting off. To kind of give you a broader understanding of every project that you are doing from every perspective, would you say that in terms of being in a leadership position on a UX team, um, that you need all of those different facets of experience and understanding that you should have touched a little bit of dev and have a deep understanding of tech and understand branding and understand marketing?
2: I think that user experience as a discipline has many different aspects and facets to it. But I think in order to be a good UX practitioner, what you have to be is a great synthesizer. Now, whether your career leans more towards design and tech or perhaps it's more into even service design or another aspect, what you really need to have is the ability to synthesize uh, different, different points, different needs. Uh, as well as empathize with those needs. So you should empathize as much with your executive stakeholder as you do with your end user or end customer. And it's only through that synthesis where new opportunity to, to service better and to provide innovation can emerge. So I'd say that the number one quality or one of the most important qualities for a UX practitioner is just to be a synthesizer. And if you happen to have a diverse background that has more to offer, all the better, because that just gives you more of a 360 degree perspective on the challenge you're facing and the reality that consumers today have many different touch points, many different experiences, and you're going to have to figure out how to fit what you're offering into their lives.
1: Can you learn to be a synthesizer? How can you be great at that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I think if you went to a course today, when, when I started in the field, there were no courses. I think the courses today offer different research methodologies to help give you the information. And then I think you practice those research methodologies along with putting yourself in the shoes of the person you are trying to appeal to or work with. And to me, that's more of a practice, um, and you can get better and better at it over time.
1: You talked about uh, moving into digital products, and I wanted to touch on one of your notable accomplishments while you were at Digiflare. So you were collaborating with, um, I believe it was Rogers at the time, to design and launch SureTap. Um, It was Canada's first mobile wallet platform, and you leveraged NFC and smart SIM technology. Um, And if I'm correct, it spun off to be its own company.
2: Uh, yeah, my understanding is, so what happened there is uh, Rogers had great infrastructure. Uh, they saw the opportunity uh, to work in the digital wallet space, leveraging their infrastructure. But you need a lot of partners for something like that to work. So what they were really looking at was how do we launch an alpha product and then scale from there. Uh, in the time since it has spun off, and I believe it's a conglomeration today, I'm no longer uh working with them but I believe it's a conglomeration between a few telcos and a few financial institutions working together to create an authentically Canadian digital wallet
1: okay now when you were working on that project because it was the first mobile wallet I imagine that um, even from a technology perspective from a UX perspective um, there were some challenges encountered um, but what would you say were some of the biggest contributors to that project success
2: um, I think, well, first of all, uh, there was a lot of corporate support for it. That's always important. There was an eye to how can we make this the best possible experience for consumers at the at that time? And also, how can we in a positive way demonstrate to companies the shortfalls? Because some of the shortfalls are. Uh, you know, credit applications work a certain way that doesn't work well as a mobile experience. So you'd almost have to demonstrate that shortcoming in order to create that culture shift that allows that partner, that credit card company to change some of their process and flows so that they can become more competitive uh, and help the product e- even further. So I think it's it's really an all-hands-on-board and everyone working together towards the same goal ultimately is what's required, uh, especially if you're going to try to be a disruptor.
1: Okay. Um, and, and you brought up a good point there about best possible experience for customers is obviously the, the ultimate goal. Um, I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about um, technology and how it's penetrating Every day, consumers' everyday lives. So if we talk about VR as a technology, how far away do you think we are from VR technology, Oculus Rift, AR, um, from penetrating consumers' everyday lives? And furthermore, how do you see brands leveraging this technology to connect and create the best possible experience for customers?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know how far VR is. Um, The hardware has to mature a bit. I know a lot of big companies are investing in it. But I do know that even though innovation sometimes seems slow in coming, once it arrives, the adoption is exponential. You know, radio took 38 years to adopt uh, to 50 million users, the internet just five years. So I know once it arrives, it's quickly going to be adopted into, into the fabric of consumers' lives. Uh, For brands it presents a significant challenge because what they're going to have to do for one thing is become better storytellers and uh, in addition to better storytelling, technology, you know, every next generation of technology integrates many previous technologies. So, kind of in a similar fashion we 're leaving the world of one size fits all advertising we 're entering into the world of hyper personalized experiences and interactions uh, driven by big data and great creative and and in a kind of a multi screen multi touch point world and I think brands are going to have to adapt to that very quickly, not only to be great storytellers, not only figuring out how to engage and interact with consumers. Uh, But also there is this collapse where the ad not only engages and creates awareness, it can also be the point of sale. Or it can be the point at which you trial the product or experience it before you buy it. And um, brands and, and, and companies are going to have to figure out how to offer those experiences to consumers in a distributed way, but one that's highly personal and relevant to you and your tastes.
1: So ultimately, I mean, any technology, exponential adoption, yes. But if it's not serving the purpose of telling a better story, then, I mean, how far is it really going to get? So talking about better storytelling, what's missing today from that? Or, or what is the foundation of perhaps um, the next phase of better, more connected storytelling for brands?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, you A lot of brands and companies and creative, they're challenged because there's still this approach that's one size fits all, just like a traditional 30 second uh, TV commercial. That really doesn't work on digital, but digital offers us a fantastic opportunity to really target our audience, to personalize the message uh, in a thousand different ways. So even in storytelling, there's so many different ways uh, that we can do that to really target who are we after? What do we know about them? How much of their preferences and tastes and even their friends and and their experiences can we put into this? And how effective can we be at transmedia storytelling so that it really becomes something that's engaging and meaningful to them? I think this is a struggle even in today's world without VR technology, but when you add VR on top of it, where you are so immersed, not just in a 30 second ad that you're watching on the wall, but in a world you are being put into, we now have to think of what is that world. And it is much more of a free flow experience. It's far, you know, it's more self-directed uh, by the person experiencing it than by uh, the, the, the commercial offering it. So I think that that is a massive challenge. And uh, I think it's also a really exciting one. Because we can really uh, reach the, the, the limits of our creativity and create a whole world uh, that is very interconnected and, and where anything is possible. So we're almost putting, uh, putting them in, into a dream state, into a dream world where we can do anything we want. If I want you to feel like you're an extreme sports skier, I could probably offer that to you
1: storytelling really, it, it transcends, it transcends across various channels. Um, it obviously impacts the visual presentation in which you're delivering the story to customers. How do you think that will impact a shift in design? So for example, we've witnessed a shift from realism to flat to material design. What do you think the next big shift is um, as it relates to design in the marketplace?
2: You know, a lot of people think the move to flat design was largely aesthetic, but it's much deeper than that. It kind of recognized that people adopted technology so much that they're comfortable with digital and they're comfortable with authentically digital experiences. It also said we can get rid of a lot of those extras and have kind of a UI less experience. And what we're noticing is uh, human computer interaction is moving to a place where it's much more intuitive and natural. And, um... If you look at new technologies like Siri, Allo from Google, uh, the the new products from Amazon Echo, Google Home, we're getting into a stage where it's you know the the UI is is disappearing, but the experiences are getting better, and I think that's a really wonderful space for us to play in. So I think that design and branding is shifting. Um, Because think of what is branding in the world where it's an Amazon Echo. Branding is that voice or even just that color. Uh, So that experience is much richer and much deeper. And so brands are going to have to figure out how to offer full service experiences regardless of the platform. Uh, Another thing is that channels are changing. So before you'd invest in your website. But today we see, you know, people are using messaging apps and that becomes its own content channel. uh, But it's also a purchasing uh, channel as platforms uh, converge. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting opportunity for, for brands um, to create those interactions. And now that voice of the brand is really all they're interacting with. There's no UI there, really. It's just the voice of the brand. So I think that brands are going to become more sophisticated and are also going to take on more personality than they've ever had before.
1: And so then in order to be able to meet these expectations of what brands are delivering, what does that mean from a talent perspective? What, How does talent have to change in order to be able to um, service or fulfill these new kind of design needs that are looming?
2: I think that the next generation of creative talent, not only do they have to be great creative thinkers. They have to be comfortable in understanding how they can tell their story in all these different platforms. They maybe have to be visual thinkers, also auditory thinkers, uh, and copy copywriters uh, that can think, um, I guess, sorry, if I can start over. As these platforms converge, the talents also have to converge a little bit and you have to also be able to, to think across the spectrum of creativity and experiences. So I think the next generation of talent, we're going to see more unicorns and more new job titles, which are hybrid hyphenated job titles. I think that's the way of the future. And it makes a lot of sense to me. I think, for example, in the future, everyone is now one part designer. You might be an engineer, you might be a teacher, but you're also part designer because you're recognizing how much design and experience can affect the person you are speaking to and affect what it is you want them to do or what it is you want them to take away uh, from that. So even on the education leading into this. We're going to have a more of a hybrid approach to education because we've learned a lot about humans and about psychology and about how we learn and about how we grow and how we can exercise our talents. So I think the next generation is going to be more multilingual in terms of their skill set than they were in the past.
1: So that's a really great point. Kind of the shift of whatever role it may be has to I think both left brain, right brain, um, and even engineers are going to be looking at the design portion of the work that they're doing. Now, we hope that in terms of education, the system is also shifting so that they're able to meet um, this need as uh, branding and marketing and design continues to evolve. Um, But in terms of uh, those that perhaps aren't there yet, what can they do in order to be a more well-rounded designer?
2: I I think um, to be a well-rounded designer is more than just thinking about colors or aesthetics. It's how are you going to solve a problem? So uh, going back to the theme of being a great synthesizer, understanding the problem really, really well and understanding how your design solution helps facilitate an answer. Now, understanding the problem might mean you understand a little bit more about business or you might understand a little bit more of the consumer journey, or you might understand a little bit more about a platform and and, and some of the nuances and how you can make it work. I think that that's how they can make themselves more valuable and more relevant and better designers.
1: Okay. Um, Touching on today at One Method and part of what you do, so you were brought on board, part of your mandate was to help build the in-house UX practice. Um, I'm sure this comes with all kinds of challenges that I'd love to learn more about. Um, so in practice, collaboration can meet, be met with resistance um, from management sometimes. So from a leadership perspective, um, what needs to be done to ensure that UX isn't a siloed practice?
2: Yeah, we have to recognize that in today's world all the dots connect and this kind of a waterfall approach just won't work You can't have a blueprint on one end and then a great experience on the other end uh, That great experience is really the product of a lot of collaboration And it's all collaboration around what the user problem is and what you're trying to do and that's collaboration between creative between visual designers between digital design um, like uh, front-end developers uh, And back-end developers to create what is at the end and an experience where people go, wow, that really helped me. I, I enjoyed it and I'll continue to engage with it. So the biggest challenge most companies face is really how do you take an integrated design thinking approach to your projects and how do you break this down, the silos of different departments that are each responsible for a different thing? Uh, one method is extraordinary in the sense that uh, they kind of get out of the way and let people do what they need to do in a very entrepreneurial way um, and learn. 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 Uh, from the good and learn from the bad and get better all the time and I think that that's the right approach to take.
1: And so you talked about collaboration across multidisciplinary teams. Um, Now if someone were to be establishing or applying Lean UX design principles inside an organization, um, they could be met with a fear of failure. Or um, they could have someone across a multidisciplinary team um, perhaps being scared of making a bad decision. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fear of failure?
2: Yeah, I mean, fear of failure will stifle any innovation, and that's why your team has to go in together and kind of unified, and you have to decide on the outset, what kind of culture are you going to be? Are you going to be a culture? If you want to innovate, if you want to say, I'm going to have out-of-the-box solutions, you have to have a tolerance for all sorts of ideas, for divergent thinking, for experimentation, for trial and for error. Uh, if you use the right tools and you have the right experience on board, uh, the risk is much less, but there's always risk when you're doing something new. But there's also approaches because just like you can uh, run uh, lean UX practices, uh, you know, there are different ways to build wooden bridges and test out ideas, test out hypotheses before you overinvest in them. And I think that's a big part of mitigating risk, but then also uh, doing new things. Ultimately, though, the culture has to be one that tolerates the type of creativity that achieves new things.
1: Okay, and that leads me to my next point, which is how do you foster that type of culture of innovation? And if you already come into an organization um, that does have a culture of innovation, how do you maintain that?
2: Yeah, it's a huge challenge. Um, The first thing I think of is that People are diverse and robust creatures. And I think in the past you were given one job and one title, and that's all you wanted you were told to do. But I think people are so much more robust that the first part of innovation is letting a person be robust at their job and bring in, you know, th- their hobbies, their other ideas, their other things, and giving that an opportunity to be recognized as part of the solution domain. So great ideas have no home. Uh, you know, maybe if we're working on a campaign or something for moms uh, and, and that accountant happens to be a mom, she might have a great idea. So you want to be as inclusive of, uh, as possible of people's uh, experiences and talents and recognize what they can bring to the table and also try to do work outside of work, meaning here we have an experimental, experimentation lab, we call it the math lab and where we let people apply their different talents and we've had really lucrative results. Um, So we had a designer here who had aspirations of being a chef. So we decided we would try out some of his ideas and this led to one of the biggest uh, restaurant success stories in, in the city. And so that spirit of innovation is letting people be who they are letting them experiment letting them bring more ideas to the table and trying to give them interesting projects where they can apply some of those talents whether that's a regular traditional project you sold to client or a little side project where we found a way to just bring your talent to try to do something where it's our own investment but that investment might be lucrative and might lead to new opportunities and at the very least uh, was an investment in the people themselves and an opportunity for them to get outside of their day-to-day role or day-to-day responsibility and do a little bit more.
1: Absolutely. And the story that you brought up in terms of um, the person who tested out the, the restaurant and it um you know grew into something very successful is is a great indicator of what happens when um, you do people give people the autonomy and the resources to be innovative. Um, but what if it's not necessarily as clear in terms of the success? How do you measure the success of innovation?
2: Um, I think innovation, at the end of the day, is not adding new invention. Innovation is adding new value. Like uh, you know, Apple didn't invent the MP3 player, but they certainly made it better because you could do playlists on the MP3 player. Netflix didn't invent video rentals, but they found a way to to make that. And so the measure of innovation is, did you take uh, something that people might not have even seen as a problem, but you made something better out of it? And I think that that's the ultimate test of innovation. People will adopt it if it's something that works better, uh, works better for them, for whatever it is they want to do. And the better people are at thinking about how can I see a problem and solve a problem, the better they are at becoming
1: innovators. Okay, and I love that point that you said, it's not about adding invention, it's about adding new value. Um, You also talked about allowing people to do work that is outside of their everyday work or their primary mandate. I know that um, in your spare time, you've tinkered around building your own apps. Um, I thought it'd be great to end off our conversation talking a little bit about that. Can you tell us um, a little bit about your latest project? Um, And how do you think your side projects help with staying innovative in your own professional growth?
2: I I am engaged in a side project right now where we're trying to do an innovative uh, edutainment product for early childhood development. Uh, It's exciting because it's just a field I'm passionate about. It's not commercial in in terms of... um, trying to, to meet, the, meet a brief that a client has outlined for me, instead it meets a brief uh, that I've written for myself that I'm passionate about, um, and where I can do things that I wouldn't try to do, experiment in new territories where we're experimenting with hardware, uh, we're experimenting with software, and it's a challenge where you get to stay relevant because you have to do the research uh, to, to make sure your product will be a success. So I think that those side challenges are always interesting. You should always have one foot outside of the day-to-day because that's, you know, probably that's where people's passions are. And that's where the opportunity to do something different and acquire a few extra skills, which eventually will find their way into your day-to-day job. uh, That's where they come from. So I always encourage people, especially if you want to be a a great experienced designer and solutioner uh, to have one step uh, outside of your day to day, and make sure it's where your passions lie. Because if you're doing what you're passionate about, you're not really working. You're having a lot of fun, and you're learning at the same time.
1: Okay, um, well then, what excites you most about where where the de- uh, What excites you most about where the design industry is headed?
2: There's so many new things coming, and the way we absorb and where it might go, it's fascinating. We have robotics, we have AI, we have new technologies you talked about, like VR, and even more exciting, uh, AR, augmented reality. Uh, And all of these are integrated, and then there's the Internet of Things and wearables. I think that the future could be very bright and exciting and lead to better places for humanity. But in order for that to happen, behind the scenes have to be people who are really thinking about people first and thinking about how do we apply these technologies to create more value, to create better human experiences, to solve problems. uh, to solve problems, to create better health outcomes or better education outcomes or better civic outcomes. And I think that's really the ultimate place where designers who are design, uh, who are inherently synthesizers and try to think of something that isn't there yet, I think that that's the most exciting domain for them to play in. And that's the most exciting aspect of design in the future.
1: Fantastic. I have to agree with that. Um, well, thank you so much um, for being with us. It was a pleasure to chat with you.
0: My pleasure.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That concludes our conversation with Lanny. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something and I hope you'll come back to listen to another episode soon. You can find Lanny on Twitter at Al Geffen or at OneMethod.com. You can follow us on all social media channels at Talent and Titan, as well as our sponsor at Creative Niche. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and comment to Talent and Titan on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at TalentandTitan.SimpleCast.FM. I am your host, Christian Gilbert. Thank you for listening, and take care. Until next time, cheers. (laughs)